back to Peace in Their Time, episode 57, Siberian Politics. So far, I've given you a pretty straightforward accounting of what's going on in Japan leading into the 20s. But I fear that I might have left you a little overwhelmed with all this talk about competing branches of government and factions jostling for power so that they could be the ones to not make any changes in society. Luckily for us, and not so much for Japan, an international incident started brewing in the waning days of World War I that is both instructive for how the Japanese elites conducted themselves and also proved damaging to the public's opinion of Japan's institutions. Which is to say, there's a point to this that ties into the purpose of this podcast. I'm talking about the international, but mostly Japanese, intervention into the Russian Far East. On the surface, Japan's interest in the area seemed pretty straightforward. The Russians had been bitter enemies until after the Russo-Japanese War, and as I've explained in previous episodes, the Japanese military was always looking to protect their conquests by making more conquests. And the Russian Far East was just right there, adjacent to bases in Manchuria, Korea, and Sakhalin. The flimsy connection of the region via the Trans-Siberian Railway meant that the Russian heartlands were oh-so-distant. With the Tsarist regime collapsing in 1917, it must have looked like an opportune time to start flexing. That the new Bolshevik regime establishing itself in European Russia appeared to be playing ball with the Germans also added a strategic justification for intervention that also brought in the interest of the other members of the Entente. Something that doesn't get remembered much was that a lot of German and Austrian POWs were being held in Siberia and the Far East, and there was a fear that those troops would be sent weapons and reorganized to occupy the area on behalf of the Bolsheviks, while those same Bolsheviks served the ends of the Central Powers. Which sounds far-fetched, but that was a real fear the Entente had. There was also the little matter of weapons depots in the port of Vladivostok. I've discussed Japan's economic boom being fueled by weapons purchases by the Entente, and that included Russia. All sorts of gear from Japan and other countries were channeled through Vladivostok, and since the Trans-Siberian was limited in how much freight it could carry, it just piled up in the city. Calling it a literal powder keg wouldn't be far off from the truth, and the Entente was very anxious not to let it fall into Bolshevik or even German hands. There were a lot of obstacles, though, to intervention, and they heavily delayed the start of operations. So much so that I'm just going to warn you, two of the three episodes on this topic are going to be bickering and intrigue leading up to the actual expedition. The first and foremost issue was that the prospect of sending troops into Russia was never a popular one. Public opinion didn't support it, and most of the elites didn't support it either. The Japanese public had wanted to conquer the Far East in the aftermath of the Russo-Japanese War, but that was over a decade ago, and domestic problems were now the public's primary concern. This was concurrent to rampant price hikes and food shortages back home. Which, you know, good on them. Good priorities for once. At best, there was support for a limited intervention to protect Japanese commercial interests and ensure the region didn't fall into the kind of anarchy that would spread south. The ultra-nationalists in the military were the main backers of a real-deal occupation of the area. And while their influence was powerful, they couldn't force the government to commit to an operation of this size. The Japanese reluctance was shared with the other members of the Entente as well at least at first. The British and French, for example, more than had their hands full in Europe, and it would be the Americans that would be the most promising and capable partners for the Japanese in the expedition to come. 
And even then, the U.S. government would keep strict rules of engagement to avoid getting embroiled in the conflicts that sprung up in the region, which is weird to say for Americans. The next biggest problem was the sheer scale that any expedition would have to deal with. Now, in case you're wondering, nobody was considering marching all the way to the Arctic Circle or something. Nobody was ever that insane. Initially, the Entente were just looking at moving into Vladivostok, which itself was close to the Korean border and easily accessed by sea. That was totally doable, but the Japanese military had an eye at expanding operations across the whole of the Amur River Basin, even as far as the city of Irkutsk, just west of Lake Baikal. Though even if operations were kept to the waterways of the Amur and also the Trans-Siberian Railway, the distances involved would be gigantic for a nation like Japan. The other Entente members balked at the idea of going that far, although as we'll see, circumstances sometimes change their thinking. And this wasn't just a big region either, it was rugged as all hell. We're talking vast forests, hills, mountains, and the legendarily awful winters. All that and hardly any infrastructure to speak of. It it was just a nightmare to operate in. In addition, the entire area was playing host to refugees fleeing the fighting and revolution to the west, and had also been subject to colonization drives in years prior to the war, done in order to anchor the land further to Russia. These settlers included state-sponsored peasants and Cossacks that settled along the border with China. Uh, there were also scattered cities along the Trans-Siberian, although they were small affairs and only Irkutsk passed the 100,000 mark in population. In the more remote areas, there still lived the native Siberians, still trapping furs and minding their herds, not terribly connected with the relative newcomers. A common characteristic among the peoples of the region was a fair degree of communal independence, which makes sense given their distance from the Tsarist regime back in the heartlands. They were also fairly prosperous communities, as while the land could be harsh, there was plenty of it, and the members of those communities were good at supporting each other. This meant that by the early phase of the revolution, the population didn't see as much benefit to supporting the Bolsheviks as their counterparts back west did. Policing the millions of independent-minded Russians living in far-flung communities would prove to be no easy task for the outsiders, however. The last issue I'll bring up is manpower. This being World War I, the Europeans didn't have a lot of it, and couldn't be counted upon to offer much. And they wouldn't. The Americans didn't relish fighting a war in such a distant land, which yes, that's a characteristic that existed at one point in time. And even the Japanese were reluctant to commit too much, even when they were right next door. The reason for that was because Japan, despite being at war with the Central Powers, was not on true war footing. Uh, there had not been a mass mobilization, and the government did not intend to start one for Siberia's sake. And while the army was looking hungrily in that direction, troops sent north would leave the rest of the empire under garrison, and they were paranoid enough that they couldn't accept that. In short, it all seemed like a bad idea, and was treated as such for most of 1917. The course of the Russian Revolution, though, changed all that. After the Tsar was deposed, Russia was led by a pro-Entente government, but that, too, was deposed by the Bolsheviks in October 1917. After that, the Entente started entertaining every kind of harebrained scheme to keep the Eastern Front active. And Japan, having already been approached to take a more active role in the war in the past, knew their allies were going to approach them again to go into Russia. During a joint conference in late November, though, 
The French took a slightly different tact and proposed they go in as a group. Their vision, shared by the UK, was way too grandiose for the Japanese and Americans, though, as they called for marching from the Pacific into European Russia, rallying Russian troops and civilians along the way, and rebooting the Eastern Front, which caused the Japanese and Americans to look at each other like their European counterparts had lost their minds. Still, the anarchy in Russia was especially acute in the Far East, and the Bolsheviks had little sway there, while their rivals in the hodgepodge faction called the Whites hadn't organized anything in the area either. Nothing concrete by the end of 1917 had been discussed among the Japanese leadership, but there were murmurs about making a play to the North while their neighbor was at its weakest. There was also the concern that if Japan didn't make a move, then someone else would. In conversations with the British in December, the Japanese offered to take the initiative and secure Vladivostok, to which the British countered by wanting the Americans to handle it so as to avoid it looking like a land grab. The Japanese said no, as they didn't want Yankees being sole operators of a strategic port right on their doorstep. Opinion turned again to a joint enterprise. And before I get too much farther into the intrigues of the Entente, I should probably give a little overview of our major players in the Japanese leadership. Firstly, there was Prime Minister Teruchi, whom you'll recall as being the Governor General who cracked down on Korea in the aftermath of that country's annexation, and who will, in 1918, leave office after the disturbances of the Rice Riots. He was a member of Yamagata's Choshu faction, and led an appointed government, which meant he had been appointed by writ of the Emperor and the elites, and not due to any electoral success. Truth be told, he was suffering already from ill health and spent a great deal of 1917 trying to bring the House of Representatives into closer alignment with his government. This actually did pay off, as he dangled appointments and promises of alliance in front of Hara Takashi and his Sayukai party. Tarochi and Yamagata certainly preferred to not work with political parties, but they were rapidly reaching a point where the legitimacy of the government rested on at least having some support, so alliances had to be made. And as for Hara, he was looking for a way into government. The Sayukai had been formed by Ito Hirobumi, who had been the greatest of Yamagata's rivals, but Ito was long gone. Hara, on the other hand, was a conservative fellow who saw eye-to-eye with Yamagata on a great deal, and even served in the old oligarch's cabinets in the past. That Hara also treated party politics as something to be carefully controlled in order to preserve political harmony also endeared him to much of the non-elected crowd. The rest of his party didn't quite see things that way, though, and he had to tread carefully with how close he operated with Tarochi and Yamagata, as many of his party subordinates very much so wanted to establish a government dominated solely by the Sayukai. As a result, Hara kept two moderate positions, and while being a conservative at heart, he was very much an internationalist when it came to foreign policy, meaning he favored reaching consensus with his Entente allies before making big moves in the world. This pitted him against the heads of the military, of whom he was deeply suspicious of, for good reason. They returned the favor, and considered him a terrible obstacle to their ambitions during their deliberations. Uh, Then there was Yamagata himself, one of the last and certainly the most powerful of of the Meiji oligarchs. He was getting on in his years, being almost 80 at the start of 1918. While he was spending more of his time away from government, Nobody carried as much personal authority as he did, and as such, decisions still had to be run through him. 
Instead of meeting in the normal halls of power, members of government would instead make the trip to his personal residence, painting a neo-feudal picture of vassals going to pay their lord homage. The Choshu faction, which, in addition to posts in the government, also dominated the general staff of the army as well. And while the generals were typically ultra-nationalist types who favored aggressive action, Yamagata himself had served in enough positions over the decades outside the army that he had a broader, although still very conservative, view of the world, and kept them in check. Which is all well and good for the events covered in these Siberian episodes, but really bad when he passes away in 1922 and suddenly there wasn't anyone around to keep the generals in their place. There was also the Satsuma faction, but their sphere of interest was the Navy, so as long as they got funding for their ships, they really didn't press one way or another at this point. But okay, so those three are the starting major players, and they'll be joined by a supporting cast as time goes on. The first one to note is Japan's foreign minister, Viscount Botono Ichiro. Botono was kind of a weird figure in Japanese politics. A career diplomat, he lived most of his life in European capitals, even taking a French wife. He was extremely pro-entente in his outlook, but also terribly isolated in the government. It would appear he acclimated a little too well to Europe, and had trouble relating with his countrymen, and was not part of any of the factions dancing around each other. Still, he was eager for Japan to meet the new Bolshevik regime head-on, and hopefully save the old European order he had come to love during his many years abroad. As 1917 closed, the army and foreign ministry were in favor of going into Russia. In mid-December, Botono pushed the idea of seizing the whole of the Trans-Siberian with the aim of reopening the Eastern Front, as the French had proposed a few weeks earlier. This backfired, though, as Hara, Yamagata and his people, and even the Satsuma faction, rallied to reject the idea. At that stage, they didn't see any coherent threat justifying that kind of expedition, and Matano failed to offer any kind of hard details as to what the final objective was, or how such an operation was to be carried out. Their viewpoint won out for the moment, and intervention was tabled. But then, the British casually dropped a message to the Japanese on January 1st, 1918, informing them that the Americans were proving to be reluctant to send anybody to Vladivostok, and that the Japanese should help twist their arm into changing their minds. And also that the British were sending a cruiser up that way to show the flag. That last bit spurned the Navy into action, as they didn't want the British just hanging out so close to Japan. They rushed in two warships and managed to beat the British by a couple days, and by January 14th, both nations had ships operating in the port. The Americans would not be outdone, and would have a battleship there by the 1st of March. Initially, the idea was not to actually take the city over, just have the ships in port to protect everybody's interests. But these things have a tendency to take on a life of their own. And since the Navy had taken its first step and hovered right off the coast of Russia, the Army started putting into motion its own preliminary steps towards intervening. Agents of the Army, spearheaded by Major General Nakajima Masataki, began entering Russia to establish contacts with the communities and authorities in the Far East and ascertain if any of them were solid enough to give support with weapons and money in exchange for collaborating with the Japanese. They found a fairly chaotic situation as most of the urban communities were torn between factions of leftists, either Bolsheviks taking their cues from Lenin, or the moderate socialists who were focused on their own individual communities. Neither type appealed to men like Nakajima, and he and the scouts that would follow him 
focused their activities among the Cossacks of the region, who were much more conservative and aligned with the old regime in Russia. Keep in mind that the Japanese government had in no way authorized any intervention at this point, and the idea of being floated was more like a police action that would not favor any one faction within Russia. The Japanese army, though, was already scouting out allies under the assumption there was going to be an occupation in order to pick and choose who they were going to support. This is that independent spirit on the part of the military was going to cause a lot of problems later on down the road. As he shuttled across Siberia, Nakajima was very successful in convincing the local Cossack garrisons not to throw in with the new Bolshevik government, and instead that they should seek independence until a more acceptable government could establish itself. While these preliminary contacts were being made, though, events did not wait on the Japanese. By the start of 1918, the Bolsheviks held the area around Vladivostok, and on the other side of the region had secured as far as Akrutsk and Lake Baikal, but had been ejected further east in the city of Chita by an outfit called the People's Soviet. In other words, Soviet is kind of associated with the Bolsheviks in hindsight, but keep in mind the word just means council. So it's basically People's Council, which were much more moderate socialists resistant to Lenin's government. Unfortunately for them, they lacked support from neighboring communities, and the Bolsheviks returned later in mid-February 1918, this time bolstered by several regiments of soldiers who had been radicalized on the long train ride back east. They had been set to demobilize, but had decided to detain their czarist officers and march on Chita. The People's Soviets were uninterested in a fight to the finish and gave up quickly. This was very instructional to the Japanese army, as they very quickly understood that their prospective partners were going to need military muscle if they were going to have any hope against the Red Army. This is also where one of the more colorful characters of this whole saga pops up. Captain Grigory Semenov was an officer in the czarist army who was actually from the region around Lake Baikal, and even had some Buryat ancestry, that being a local Siberian ethnic group. He had fought bravely and successfully enough during World War I that when the provisional government was established after the Tsar's abdication, that he was able to propose to them a little scheme. What they needed to keep fighting the Germans were reinforcements from the untapped populations of the East. Hard up on options, the provisional government sent him East to start recruiting. In January 1918, he had only assembled a mixed formation of some 500 Russians, Cossacks, Mongolians, and Siberians. He had set up shop in the Manchurian border town of Manjuli, close to where the Russian, Chinese, and Mongolian borders all meet. He had been rebuffed by the Russian authorities stationed in Harbin, the center of Russian power in northern Manchuria, and was also checked by a local militia when he attempted to overtake Cheetah and institute a far-right regime. His failures and the small size of his now-independent band of troops really should mean he isn't worth bringing up, but he really, really hated leftists of all kinds, and that made him a prospective partner in the eyes of the Japanese army. But Semenov was stuck at a border crossing in the middle of nowhere for the time being, and the Japanese were still wrangling with their allies. The French especially were perturbed at how far the Bolsheviks had managed to advance into eastern Siberia and their taking of Chita meant that a vital railway juncture was in their hands. The Trans-Siberian, a little to the east of Chita, split off into the Chinese Eastern Railway, which cut across Manchuria to create a shortcut to Vladivostok. If the Red Army decided to take that route, they could threaten the city of Harbin, which it passed through. Harbin was the centerpiece of Russian influence in Manchuria, and while still Chinese territory had fallen mostly into their hands, 
thousands of Tsarist officers and other refugees had fled to the city, which early on had been contested by the Bolsheviks due to its heavy Russian population. Now it was to be the rallying point of the white faction of the Russian Civil War in the region. To prevent a red advance, the French wanted to outfit Semenov with proper equipment and funding to raise a real army and march on Irkutsk. Again, keep in mind, in winter 1917-18, World War I was still very much going on, and the assumption among the Entente was that the Bolsheviks were acting as German proxies. And playing on that fear gave Semenov his breakthrough to be relevant to all this. He traveled to Harbin and got in touch with the Entente reps there, and managed to convince them that he had 2,000 troops ready to fight. All he needed were guns and money, and also a Japanese army to do the heavy lifting for him. Somehow, he actually made a good impression with the various Entente officers he met with, and they recommended to their superiors he be outfitted right away. The Japanese were better situated to provide aid, though, and were eager to get him in their pocket first. Taruchi approved the weapons and money to outfit Semenov under the pretext that it was at the request of the recognized Russian ambassador. Much of the funding came from the Zaibatsu operating in Siberia, which is a fun example of civilian and military interests intersecting. Still, this was only one faction situated at a lonely border outpost. While this was being carried out, the Red Army continued its march east. By early March 1918, most of the major cities in the region were in their hands, and the Cossack and white troops were fleeing into Manchuria. This new influx of military refugees spurned the Chinese government into action. They deployed thousands of troops into Manchuria and took back control in Harbin. They didn't immediately provoke a fight with the Russian troops there, but were insistent that they respect Chinese authority and stand down from anti-Bolshevik operations. While China was, like Japan, allies within the Entente, they were totally uninterested in picking a fight with the Red Army, and they absolutely didn't want a bunch of whites running wild in Manchuria, giving the Red Army ample excuse to enter Chinese territory, which would in turn virtually guarantee a Japanese intervention there as well. During these months, the Chinese government was in turmoil of its own, as warlord factions had forced Duan Cherui from the premiership, which was an issue because he usually caved into Japanese demands, and Japan really needed assurances that the Chinese would play ball in Manchuria when it came time to intervene. In early March, Foreign Minister Matono tried to pressure Beijing into allowing Japanese troops to operate in Manchuria under the guise of preventing a German takeover. He also implied, threateningly, that Japan would leave open the option of taking unilateral action in order to safeguard its interests. This kind of freaked out the Beijing government as they weren't really in a position to resist. But while Matono was playing bad cop, unbeknownst to him, Taruchi had sent in a less bad cop. Nishihara Kamezo was a well-connected businessman working in China, and also on occasion acted as an agent on behalf of Taruchi. In this case, he dangled a desirable trade agreement and a sizable state loan to the Beijing government in exchange for restoring Duan to his premiership and accepting Matono's demands. The Japanese foreign minister was left infuriated by the outcome of all this, though, as his own prime minister had cut him out of Nishihara's maneuverings entirely. The foreign office was a public bystander, as Taruchi personally engineered a reshuffling of China's government and made important economic agreements which was just another day in the life of Japanese politics. This left the Americans as the last piece of the puzzle before moving into Siberia in some form. Up to this point, they had seemed uninterested in anything other than their commercial interests in the region, 
and didn't consider the enroaching Bolsheviks that much of an issue. They certainly didn't put a lot of stock in the Whites, who were firmly on the back foot. The Japanese, though, suspected some double game being played, as the Americans did have a team of railroad specialists deployed to Harbin to act as advisors on improving the railways in the Far East. The Japanese heard railway advisors and immediately assumed the U.S. was going to take over the entire Trans-Siberian. Japan's solution was to work in concert with the U.S. in order for both nations to keep an eye on each other. The Americans, though, were still uninterested with the military operation, and in March 1918, rejected again the calls of its allies to send troops there. However, the politicking to actually get the intervention going was far from over, but Matona was going to have to stick his neck out even further in order to escalate the situation. Next week, we'll continue the build-up to the intervention, and an added wrinkle will be added as tens of thousands of Czechs, formerly prisoners of war in Russia, decided to take the long way back home. Join me then, and as always, thank you very much for listening.